0: So last week we began looking uh, at the end of chapter 1 about what is decidedly bad news. It is bad news. And I tried to make the case from that section of Romans 1 that, that God's wrath against humans, against people, is presently being revealed in that God just removes his hand of restraint from our lives and lets us do what we want to do. And we see in Romans one this whole list of things that that naturally that people want to do if they just live for themselves and if they are kind of pursuing self pleasure at every turn. In the list, it, it includes lots of things. It talks about um, hatred for others. There's uh, lists of sexual deviances. There's uh, talking about disobedience to parents. I mean, it's just kind of this broad, all encompassing thing. Life lived in rejection to God incurs His wrath, which is Him saying. Okay, do what you want to do. And Paul is, as I said last week, he is building up this case of bad news. My think of it is is piling up a mound of bad news. And he's doing it again this week and he's going to end it next week. But he's piling up this huge mountain of bad news so that he can come and plant this flag of good news on top of it. And as I mentioned last week, the good news only shines in its brightest when it is put in relief against the darkness of the bad news. And so he does continue that tonight. And one thing that you'll notice in just a second when we read this is that chapter 2 takes a particularly legal tone. It's basically like a courtroom scene. and You'll see uh, the words that he uses very much paint that picture for us. And so as we look at that, there's three things that are going to stand out. One is that there is a future judgment of God coming. The second thing you'll see is that everyone is going to be a part of that trial. And the third thing you're going to see is that there is a good judge presiding over it. So let me pray for us real quick, then we're going to read this passage together. God, would you ask that you would come and be with us, that you would um, unstop our ears from the anxiousness of life, from all the things that that we need to do and and have to do after this, um, from the cares of what people think about us, from our depression, from our worry, just from all the things that we walk into this room with. We ask that for just a moment you would give us ears that would hear you clearly through this passage. We pray and ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So this is Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. This is God's Word. That is a long reading. You guys did well. Let me ask you a very, very simple question before we go uh, into this passage. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free from your judgmental spirit? Do you want to be free from just walking out of these doors or walking out of your room in the morning onto campus and just immediately being flooded with the, the need to to kind of pass judgment on the other people, whether it's what they're wearing or how they talk or where they're from or the color of their skin or their, their wealth or, or whatever it may be, don't you want to be free from that? And don't you want to live in a world where that is not a thing? This passage tells you how that happens. It tells you how that happens and it does it in the context of a courtroom. So the three things we're going to look at tonight, which are there in front of you, are the Judgers. If that's not a word, that's fine, I made it up. The Judgers, the Judgment, and the Judge. Let's go to the Judgers, right there. In verse 1, Paul begins this chapter, this section of his letter, with the word, therefore. Now, very high-level, intense Bible training will teach you that whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to ask, what is it, therefore? You're welcome. Uh, So what is it there for? Why is that word there? Well, Paul is continuing his kind of line of reasoning and argument that he started in the first chapter. And as I mentioned, the first chapter kind of ends with this litany of kind of big outward sins that others would know about. And so what you might be expecting to happen is for Paul to say, therefore, anybody who does all those things, it's going to be really bad for them. And they're really going to get it on the day of judgment. But that is not what happens. When Paul says, therefore, in verse 1, he begins to say and starts to make the case that it's not just the people with these kind of gross, immoral, outward sins that are going to receive judgment, but it is everyone who will receive judgment. It is the people with the outward sins and the obvious ones that stand guilty before God, but the terrible news is that it's also people with the inward sins, the issues of the heart, things that may never quite make their way out for the public to see, but nonetheless will stand guilty before God. And so he looks and he kind of uh, elaborates on that through talking about three different groups of people. And the first people we see are the self-righteous people. In verses 1 through 3, the self-righteous people. Now let me get there by way of illustration. A friend of mine grew up uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, and he went to elementary school uh, at his church. I guess his church had an elementary school there. And and so part of their daily routine was that when he would go to church, they would begin their school day with a a little short devotional and and then prayer. And so on this one particular day, uh, they they went to class. The teacher gave a short devotional, read a passage of scripture or something, and then said, okay, everybody close your eyes and bow your heads. And now if you've ever heard that around praying, Connor said it, which is great, Um, the whole reason that this kind of tradition happens is because we're prone to distraction. Okay? Bowing heads is a sign of reverence, but closing your eyes is so that we're not distracted. And if you know anything about five to seven-year-olds, which this guy was, they live a distracted life. And so the teacher said, all right, bow your heads, close your eyes. And, uh, and, and she prays a prayer. And at the end, this girl named Annie fires up her hand. And the teacher said, teacher. Yes, Annie, what what is it? When you were praying, Jenny's eyes were open. And the teacher looked at Annie and said, well, Annie... How would you know that Jenny's eyes are open during the prayer? And Annie sat there and didn't say anything. And as my friend tells it, they found that argument pretty compelling. And so do we in a million different ways. We find that argument of self-righteousness compelling when a politician rails against uh, you know, corporate bribery in a campaign and yet is found guilty of receiving millions of dollars funneled through a super PAC. We find that line of reasoning compelling when uh, a a school teacher or some sort of youth worker who kind of uh, upholds and and cherishes the kind of development of the nation's youth and then is found guilty of child trafficking or some sort of sexual misconduct with a kid. We find that line of reasoning compelling when uh, the dorm president, the president of your dorm hall or of your fraternity or sorority or whatever is just rails on you about being on time and yet is consistently late. And we find that line of reasoning compelling when you and I hate when others lie to us. And yet day by day we carefully construct this life built on half-truths. That thing that we recognize and hate is self-righteousness. And Paul says in verse one, right off the bat, therefore you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that's true. We're all self-righteous. Secondly, he gives another case of people right here who were judges, and, and I couldn't figure out a better way to say this, so I'm just going to call them law knowers. Descriptive, I know. Uh, We're all law-knowers. In verses 9 and 10, Paul kind of reintroduces his everyone spectrum, which he says is from Jew to Greek. And that's his way of saying everybody is included here. And he describes that spectrum in another way in the the following verses, 12 through 16. He says that there are those who had the law, which in Paul's mind are the Jewish people, and those who did not have the law the, the not-Jewish people. And later he would talk about those who were circumcised, the Jewish people, and those who didn't have the sign of circumcision, the, uh, the non-Jewish people. Okay, so he's kind of giving this spectrum. And he's saying, uh, rather than saying, but it's only the people who had God's law and who could read right from wrong in the Ten Commandments, it's only those people who are guilty of judging others. Paul says, no, that's not it. What he actually says is this, I'm paraphrasing Yet yeah, we all know right from wrong. Everybody knows right from wrong. We all know that it is not okay and it will not lead to the flourishing of any society if we all lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery. Envy one another's things, uh, build our lives on deceit. Paul is saying, we know that's true. You don't have to see and read the Ten Commandments to know that those things are true. And his line of reasoning goes like this. He simply says, the law of God is written on your hearts. Now, how can Paul say that? What's he talking about? Well, in in chapter 1, which we looked at over the last couple of weeks, Paul has said that God is the Creator And that's, that's very much a big claim that he's making in which a lot of things flow from in this letter. And he said, look, God is the creator. And as part of that creation, he has created mankind in his image. And that means a lot of things. It means that everybody has dignity and worth intrinsic to their personhood. That doesn't come through an achievement or through some color of your skin or anything. Dignity and worth is intrinsic to you as being a human But it means something more. When we are made in God's image, he imprints his character, his moral norms in a moral order to our lives. He imprints it on our conscience, on our hearts. And so Paul says our consciences either excuse or or accuse us. We know what is right from wrong. We are, as it is, all law knowers, whether Jew or Greek. And therefore, we are all lawbreakers because we don't do those things consistently, or regularly even. Third, another category here for judgers. He then moves on and makes a particular move toward the religious people of his day, which uh, in Paul's mind and in that place would have been the Jews. And, and far be this from uh, Paul making some sort of anti-Semitic statement. He himself was a Jew. And But what he's doing is, and, and the reason he singles out this group in verse 17 through 29 It makes this devastating case that they too will be judged is precisely for this reason. That throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, the Jewish people kind of tried to make this case before God and others. Well, look, we are God's special people. Look, you can read about it in the Bible, which was their Old Testament. You can read about it. Look how God favored us, and He chose us from all the other nations. And look at the many ways that He's blessed us throughout history. And He's given us His Word, and He's given us the Law and the Prophets, and He even gave us a land to live in. He cleared out the other nations. Look how much God loves us. Surely, we will escape His judgment. And so they have this kind of religious superiority about them. And look at verses 28 and 29 right there. Follow along as Paul just crumbles their house of cards. He says, look, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But what he's saying is a true Jew, one who is actually in a right relationship with God, is one inwardly. In circumcision, which was this outward sign given to the Jewish people, put in their flesh, he says circumcision is is not about the sign that you have in your body. Circumcision, belonging to God, is actually a matter of the heart. It's about something on the inside. What he's saying to them is very clear. Their religious heritage doesn't count. And neither is mine. neither is yours. And for some of you, that's good news. And for others of you, that's not good news. Some of you are trying to escape your past. And others of you are trying to ride on the coattails of your past. Paul says it doesn't add up. Uh, Last fall here on campus, RUF was uh, one of the sponsoring organizations for um, a lady who came uh, to campus and and shared her story of God's work in her life. And in talking uh, about her life before she became a Christian, she recounted how she and her friends were often the object of a lot of hatred and very unkind words from uh, lots of people, and in particular, lots of people who would identify as Christians. And throughout all the things, the many, many things and the jeers that she would hear, uh, one of the things stuck out more than anything. And it was this phrase right here. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Now, you've probably heard that. Maybe you've said that. I have said that. It is. And the reason that we kind of will latch onto that, or maybe say it, or maybe you said it today, I don't know, is that it, it sounds good. It sounds like, well, I'm making a nice gesture towards someone. I want to I want them to know that I don't like the way they're living, but I but I really enjoy them. That's kind of how it feels and how it sounds. But that sentiment is actually not biblical. It's not biblical, and here's why. Here's the overall thrust of what the Bible's trying to get us to understand about sin and the way that it works. That saying would go something like this. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. Why don't we love the sinner, the people around us, whoever they are, whatever stage of life they are, love them. And why don't you worry about what's going on in your own heart? We shouldn't be concerned with that need to kind of pass judgment on others why don't we take stock of our own life and maybe spend a little time there seeking to repent of the things that we're doing inside now I'm not saying that if you have a friend who's just walking into devastation and really going to do some terrible things to themselves or others that we don't try to stop them, that's not what I'm saying I'm talking about that everyday kind of uh, sense where we are thinking about other people's stuff more than our own and it looks like this Um, maybe we look at kind of the outward immorality of the people who are in our hall or who are in our little apartment complex or maybe who are kind of in our, our wider circle of friends and we look at all their immoral decisions and lives and then we really don't spend that much time on the secret inner thoughts of our own heart. We see how they're so obviously sexually immoral and yet we binge on porn for hours at a time in the corner of our dorm room. Or maybe you clean your side of the room for the first time in a month, and then when your roommate walks through the door, you chide him or her about not having their room clean, right? And y'all know how that goes. Once you get your side picked up, it's like, well, hey, uh, your stuff's everywhere, right? And you have to wait until you do it. Maybe it's just me. Um, Or maybe... You kind of, in subtle or not so subtle ways, let people know that, yeah, I'm not, I'm not part of those people. Um, I actually went to RUF last night. I don't know if you were there. Um, I talked to Brent. <sighs> That's worth nothing. Um, you know, Paul is, is saying that we are all judgers. This sentiment of looking at others and pointing the finger toward them is just so natural to us. However good your life looks, however much you know, however religious you are, and to the degree that those fingers of judgment are pointed outward, Paul says, to that same degree, you will be judged by God. And that goes right into our second point here. There is a coming judgment of God. What do we learn about this judgment of God in this passage? A couple things. First is that, just very simply, there is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. Um, in chapter 1 that we talked about for the last couple of weeks, Paul has said that God's wrath is, is already here and that He's letting us just kind of go and, and live however we want to live and that is the form that His wrath is taking. He's no longer restraining us. He just says, okay, you want to go ruin your life, go do it. But Paul says there's actually a future judgment. There's a future version of God's wrath that is coming also. And it will come. Verse 5 and 6. He says, because of your hardened, and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, He will render. It's this future sense that He is going to take account of what we have done in the flesh. Hebrews 9.27 says this way, it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. Okay. Think about this with me for just a second. Now, the judgment of God, on one hand, is not something at all that we like to think about. It's not like running in a field of flowers and just oh, it just makes me feel so good and it smells nice. I don't know what it'll smell like, but you know, like it's not a fun thought. But I want to suggest that you actually are used to thinking about judgment every single day of your life, all throughout the day. And here's how: when you get ready in the morning, just from the very get go. When you get ready, when you put on clothes, when you brush your teeth, or do your hair, or put makeup on, or whatever it is, you are getting ready for your encounters with people throughout that day. You are getting ready to have, uh, to have them judge you, for, to have them uh, give an opinion about you. Whether they say it or not is immaterial. You are trying to get them to say things like this. Oh, wow, she looks cute. Oh, man, he's really athletic. Look how big his biceps are. You know who you are. Uh, You know, oh man, look at how well she interacts with Like She's really sweet. Or maybe you're getting ready for a teacher. Man, you really did your work. You you know this stuff. You are preparing to shape the opinions of others. You are preparing to be judged every single day of your life. And what Paul is saying and what he's trying to make a case for is that there is a definitive large-scale, serious judgment coming. And the question is this, are you going to live and be consumed for those little micro-judgments every single day? Or will you live with the sense of the weight of the coming judgment of God, which actually matters a little more? Paul's trying to put that on our radar and say, look, you've got to give weight to that. And to the degree that you are controlled by the little micro-judgments, you will live for them. And to the degree that you are controlled, and not controlled, but living in light of this future judgment of God, you will live in light of that reality. The judgment of God is coming. Secondly, and this may surprise some of you, the judgment of God is going to be based on works. (gasps) I thought it was by faith. Ah, Paul says it right here, verse 6. You will be judged on your works. Notice what he does not say. He does not say... Very important. He does not say you will be saved by your works. But what he says is you will definitely be judged by your works. So what what that means is that at the end of your life or when Jesus comes back, both of those will culminate in the final judgment, that God is going to take stock of your life and mine and every single person who's ever existed and he is going to judge their life by what they've done. By what they've done. And y'all... When he does that, he's going to measure those works against his standard of what we were supposed to do. And what is that standard? Be perfect. Don't ever mess up. Love me and love others with your whole heart all the time, every day. And that is bad news. That is bad news. And that means that even people who are the nicest Most charitable, philanthropic, altruistic, all the nice adjectives you could even those people on that day are going to stand guilty before God. That's kind of heavy, so let's uh, read about what C.S. Lewis said. Um, C.S. Lewis says this, and I think I've got it on the screen. Yep. Niceness is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. But we must not suppose that even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree, we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. Hmm. Isn't that hopeful? Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians five seventeen: that If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're not just a cleaned up version of the old you. You're a new person. You're a new kind of being. So judgment will be based on what you've done. Niceness doesn't count. And lastly, the judgment of God will be just. In verse two, Paul says that God will judge. judge he will judge rightly. And in verse eleven, without partiality. Now, that's hard for us to understand. Let me just admit that. It's hard for us to understand that God is actually fair and that he is going to do what's right and be just. And I think one of the reasons that's hard is that we don't know what it's like to judge justly or rightly. As much as we want to think we do, we just don't. Let me give you a little illustration. A couple, uh, a month ago, actually, uh, like an idiot, I left my car unlocked overnight. Like another idiot, Idiot Squared, Uh, I left my golf clubs in the back of said car. And so when I went out the next day and I was driving around the car, I realized that that familiar rattle around every corner wasn't there. And I looked in the back and my golf clubs were gone. I was mad. That was a bad day in the Corbin house. I was mad. I wanted justice. I wanted these people to be found out. And yet, a few days later, I wanted Sarah to be so quick to forgive me when I went out and spent $1,000 on new golf clubs without asking her. I wanted wanted grace. I wanted judgment for them, but I wanted grace. And in that moment, I was showing that I am not an impartial judge. I am not judging rightly. I just can't do it. But God's judgment will be just. And the reason for that is He's a good judge. That's the last thing tonight. God's a good judge. The bad news in the passage is the judgment is coming against our sin. We have to feel the weight of that on an individual level. That we are individually going to stand before God and give account for our works and what our life, what our faith has led to in our life. We can't ride our parents' coattails. We can't get in on spiritual pedigree. And yet, even as Paul is piling up this case of bad news, there's some really good news that slips into the courtroom here. Look in, uh, look in verse 4. And actually, leading up to verse 4, Paul is saying that nobody will escape God's judgment. But, and look up, but if you are still alive, for which all the people reading the letter, by definition of them reading it, they were alive, and by virtue of all of you being in here, if you are here, you are alive. And so what Paul's saying is that, yes, everyone is going to be judged, but, but cheer up because God's kindness and his patience can lead you to repentance. What that means is that if you are still breathing, the time is not past for you to turn and live for God. To repent of your old way of living and of your sinful life and to cling to Jesus It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. Scott Saul, is a pastor in Nashville, says it this way. He says, Notice it's not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. But God's kindness, we might, and also add His patience, that He hasn't just already judged us and done away with us. It's God's kindness that leads to our repentance. And if you switch those two things, you lose Christianity. Do you catch that? But if you're operating under the mindset that it's my response to God that will either make Him happy or, or frustrated with me and lead to His kindness or disapproval, then, it's, then, uh, then I'm going to live in this burden of needing to accept Him, or needing to to be kind enough, or needing to repent enough. But, if you can recognize that God is kind, and He hasn't judged you yet, then that will actually lead to change in your life, that He is not done with you. In the 1500s, um, a then-former Catholic priest named Martin Luther was considering this very passage that we're reading tonight. That's kind of a cool thing. I don't know if you've ever done that, but people for thousands of years, in this case hundreds of years, they read and study the very same thing that we're doing tonight. And Martin Luther says uh, about this, well actually, when he gets to verse 15, you see how Paul says that even our thought life, even if our outward actions are okay, and we kind of are living a moral life out there, Paul says that even our thoughts Either accuse or excuse us. They are in rebellion against God. And how we can't make excuses before God. And Luther found incredible comfort in verse 16. Look down, I'm going to read it for us. He says, And God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And this is what Luther says. And kind of imagine a courtroom setting as we read this. But from whom, then, do we obtain the thoughts that truly excuse us? Only from Christ and in Christ. For if the conscience of a believer in Christ condemns him as an evildoer, he quickly then turns from himself to Christ and says, and imagine this, like a courtroom, there's a judge, and you turn to Christ and say, He has atoned for my sins. He is just and the justifier who died from himself? Or so, who died for me. He has made His righteousness my own. And He has taken my sins and made them His own. And if He has made my sins His own, then I no longer have them, but am free from them. If He has made my sins His own, which He did at the cross, then I no longer have them. I'm free from them. So then... God is greater than our heart. Far greater is he who defends me than that which accuses me. Indeed, infinitely greater. Do you get that? What Luther's saying about what Paul's saying is that there is a better word out there than the things going on in your heart. The good things that you're trying to hold up and prop up and say, hey, God, do you notice these things? And. The awful things which you're trying to hide from and say, God, I hope you never see that. There is a way of freedom that comes by taking your heart and setting it to the side and saying, Jesus, I need your heart in me. I need your cleanliness. And friends, this changes everything. Because Jesus was the judge who was judged so that we can stop judging. Jesus was the judge who was judged so that we can stop judging. And when I've received God's pardon by grace, we don't earn it. When I've received God's pardon by grace, I then can turn and start being gracious in less judging of the people around me. When I've received grace, I can give grace. And I can be free from from the tyranny of being a judgmental person. Don't you see that? It's only when you are free from the judgment to come that you can be free from judging others right now. And this is what the Gospel does in us. Is that true for you tonight? Let's pray as we consider it.